Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Zach will throw us up. So, yeah, hey, so Zach, how are you? Good. How about yourself? Good. So you, good, Robert, good. you told, told me to tell us about this this thing you're just talking about the low carb and the women. I'm gonna I'm gonna eat my brisket while we're while we're listening because I <laughs> I gotta eat earlier, sure. man. <laughs> are you are you recording? Yeah, we're up. You can uh, share yeah. your wealth of knowledge. <laughs> so this is, well, uh, there's questions and there's and there's answers, but this is a group of women um, that I met at the low carb USA um, conference in Boca. And I met with them a year ago and convinced them that carnival was the way to go and that the one thing that they probably needed to add to their diet was salt. And um, one of these uh, uh, women went to Barcelona and ran the Barcelona Marathon, and she was able to shave 14 minutes off her um, PR and was also, um, she said her recovery, she went for a light run the next day, which is unheard of for her after a marathon. I mean, she's not in your league, Zach, but nobody, nobody in the world is. But um, the point is that they just said that the ease of recovery and not in recovery, but also in training, and I know you probably know this, is just, it's just remarkable. And she actually recorded uh, a little message for us in Spanish that, I've, that I'm going to be playing. I'm going to do a little podcast on that. <clears throat> That's not directly my realm, but certainly encouraging people to know that it's okay. Um, to, and, and by the way, she ran fasted. So um, she ate the night before and did the run completely fast and shaved 14 minutes off and was back to running again the next day. Um, and she said it was just her, her best, the best times were in the last five miles and um, or 5K it was the fastest of the 5K splits. And she just loved it. She said it was, it was wonderful. Um, and that's with a year of adaptation to that, to that diet. Um, and there's several components that we can talk about. The one is running on carnivore. The second one is, do you run fasted or do you run, um, do you run fed? And what do you take during the race in terms of fluids as well as caloric content? And uh, I know that you probably are the expert in this um, in terms of, of distance runners, Zach. But I would love to know what your protocol is, what you found is best in terms of um, preparation the night before, meal before, and then during. And let's call it a marathon, not an ultra. Sure, yeah. So the, the disclaimer here would be, for me anyway, is I've never really peaked for a marathon in my career in the sense where I did what I would consider like an elite level training program and then went out and, and really gave it a good crack at the marathon. So I think the marathon is a little confusing to people because if we look at like the elite crowd, like these men who are running low two hours and these women who are running like say under two and a half hours, it's uh, a little different of scenario than say you're the average runner who's going to maybe be like between three and four hours. And I think it's different than ultra in the sense that 
it's like the oxygen, your oxygen uptake need for something for like a low two hour marathon or, or any all out effort at that, that, that length of time is kind of this gray area zone where you have like the, I think it's, if I'm remembering the research correctly, like an 8% oxygen cost from burning fat versus carbohydrate or glycogen. And that 8% at marathon intensity or like two hour time trial intensity is, is going to end up being a thing that makes it just kind of an apples and oranges comparison to something that's more like 12 hours, 16 hours, 20 hours, 24 hours in some cases. And, and some people would argue that those are short ultra marathons. So, <laughs> so I think we're in an interesting, interesting conversation that needs a lot of context before we get into like exactly what I think someone should do. So I can say this, like take the world record holder for the marathon, Elud Kipchoge. Um, he was run like, uh, I mean, he's run a sub two hour marathon when it was really contrived where they had like a, like a, you know, wind, like wind blocker, pacer aid, like everything just like dialed down. Like, like people would argue his shoes were a performance advantage, uh, for someone like him. I mean, I think, I mean, he may be in this unique situation where he needs to be doing a high, like a, or at least a moderate carbohydrate diet. Uh, if we're looking purely at performance. Now you get someone who is like a recreational runner or even like a semi, like semi, I don't want to say semi pro, but like someone who's like a fairly serious runner, but maybe they're not, they're not making their living doing it. So let's say uh, they can probably get away with doing a lot less carb or following a, a no carb approach. And, and that may pay off for them down the road because when we look at just elite athletes at the endurance world, um, you know, the, the health picture isn't necessarily rosy. Uh, so the long-term health stuff. So I would caution anyone who's going into training for a marathon to ask themselves, honestly, like, what are you doing? Like, do you want to maximize your absolute performance or are you looking to, you know, maybe do your best within the context of a normal life and hopefully a healthy life after that? Um, so for someone like that, I think they can definitely do something closer to like what I'm kind of doing for my ultra marathon stuff. And that would be a high fat, low carb diet. Uh, for me personally, that's quite a bit of animal products included. And then just kind of using carbohydrates strategically across the bigger training sessions and the bigger training blocks. And then on race day itself. So when we get, if we focus in on something specific like the race day or the, the days leading into the race, my kind of general protocol for folks following a high fat, low carb diet is I'll actually usually start about a week out. And what I'll have them do is like those maybe four days at the beginning of the week, I'll have them go like pretty low carb. Uh, their, their, their workout volume and intensity is dropping. So they don't need as much fuel in general, and they certainly don't need a high performance fuel. So uh, you know, they're just trying to recover and get ready for race day at that point, And they're moving their legs just enough to kind of familiarize, re-familiarize themselves with running and kind of keep that routine in place. And for that, for them, then once they're getting like maybe two to three days back, I'd have them start reintroducing a little bit of carbohydrate. Uh, the night before I'd maybe have them have like their, one of their bigger, and this is big relative to someone following a high fat, low carb approach. Uh, you know, a little more carbohydrates in like their lunch or dinner that night before morning of I'd have them do very little to no carbohydrate. 
uh, and have them have like low volume, high energy fat sources. So like heavy whipping cream, uh, coconut milk, nut butters, uh, you know, butter, that sort of thing um, is good options because I want them to start the event, not kind of triggering their body to go into glycolysis right away or start tapping into their muscle glycogens early. And then once they're in the race, once they get in, like maybe say 30 minutes in, they can start doing just a really slow drip of carbohydrate. Uh, and that would be somewhere, sometimes if it's a, if it's a recreational runner, we might go less than five grams at a, at a per like introduction of the carbohydrate source. And that's mostly just because I think the research shows that if it's less than five grams of carbohydrates, that they're not going to get this big kind of insulin response. So they're kind of doing this really slow drip. And some folks do find just kind of doing that by feel where they start to feel like their legs are getting a little heavier. They need a little pop. They'll introduce a tiny little bit of carbohydrate and they'll just do that throughout the course of the, of the, the race. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of the, the general landscape from what I've seen or what I've done. Uh, did, is that, is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. You approach this from a fuel source perspective, obviously, um, you don't have the necessarily the physician background, but mm -hmm. um, as I listen to what you speak, what's going through my head all the time, and we don't necessarily have these metrics carefully measured, although they are measurable, is what you said is what's happening to insulin, what's happening to glucagon. In other words, the ratio of those two, the interplay between those two is critically important um, to deciding whether you have a degree of lipolysis release, especially in a fat adapted athlete, which is really what we're talking about, whether you are still able to release fat from your, from your fat cells um, under the influence of consuming a bit of sugar during the race. Uh, once the race, you know, at the start of the race, you've got cortisol and a variety of other things that kind of peak and then as you start the race and then they, they settle down. So you've got to take cortisol out because that has a gluco, uh, a glycogenolytic effect. It releases glycogen from the muscles and from the liver, and we're really looking at non-muscular glycogen utilization. In other words, sources of, of uh, energy to the muscles. And really the, the delicate balance is to continue fat, especially ketone release from the fat cells, um, while you still are maintaining your blood sugar. And it's that balance, and that's controlled by insulin and glucagon, and you really don't want to trigger your insulin. So I like the word dripping that sugar in because if you get a bit of a bolus of sugar, you're going to get that spike in insulin, even in a fat adapted athlete that may shut off uh, fat mobilization. And that effect lasts for a fairly long time and you may run out or deplete some of your energy stores. The, the opposite is also true is that if you have a very low insulin level, you may have enough glucagon to continue a steady release of at first glycogen from the liver. And then it may actually start to trigger a degree of gluconeogenesis so that you are slowly dripping sugar into your bloodstream, not from your mouth, but from your liver, while you have this massive flow of ketones out of your fat cells to accommodate for any energy that you need. And that also it, uh, dramatically affects your oxygen utilization, glucose being requiring a lot more oxygen than, than fat oxidation does. Um, and that will also, to a certain extent, if you're able to use a higher percentage of ketones in your muscles, spare some of that muscle glycogen, which we see in fat adapted athletes. So, uh, you know, to my mind, in the, in the old days, when I was at medical school and Tim Noakes was a young physiologist, these uh, crazy people 
would run and actually biopsy their muscles while they were running. I, I mean, just, I cringe at the thought of that, but they've got a lot <laughs> of positive data. I would love to know what insulin and glucagon, but particularly insulin levels are through the race based on what you're doing, because that is really the quarterback of that, of that uh, care. And what you're doing is really trying not to affect insulin levels, but try to pr- uh, uh, infuse small amounts of exogenous sugar. And I wonder if, if these recreational athletes, they're a little bit more than recreational, but they were okay running somewhat faster, having been fat adapted and running on a fairly high protein load from a couple of days before uh, where they're still in ketosis. So those are all little things that need to be played out. Um, and I understand where you're coming from. I think the key thing for any athlete is to make sure that if you are fat adapted, that you're not bumping insulin to the point that blocks fat mobilization. Uh, and that's in the endurance guys. Now, in the power guys, uh, it's a whole different story because, uh, you know, as, as Sean goes, um, you really want that, that, that massive burst. And it's not just the, the access to energy, but it's also the recovery, the, uh, the aerobic recovery. Sean, any thoughts on that from your side? Well, I mean, you have to realize the system that I'm playing with most often with training is a CPK system. It's a creatinine phosphate system. So, I mean, we're not even really talking much about glucose. That's not even part of the equation for most of these strength athletes. Now, when you get into the prolonged lifting workouts where you're doing high, so like I do some bodybuilding stuff today and I, you know, I, I walked around, surely I was tapping into glucose there. But again, I, you know, I, I for the way I train and most people that are training for strength, you know, most of the time it's one, maybe two workouts a day. And I think you can certainly, and this I think is the difference between a, a classic ketogenic diet, which really undervalues protein in my view, and a carnivore diet where you've got protein at this 30%, maybe even 35 to 40%. And you are, you are having, I think, better efficiency of glycogen, uh, you know, glycogen restoration, whether it, liver, whether it be in the liver, which we certainly know occurs. And, and I would assume so in the muscle as well. And it's interesting. I just saw somebody sent me a uh, link to a bike. It's, and the, the design of the bike is supposed to be deplete your glycogen in 20 seconds. It's like one, you know, it's high intensity, you know, two bouts of, you know, basically a, uh, 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 what's the name of the test? The Wingate test. You know, basically it's like doing a couple of Wingates back to back. You deplete everything. And what they now have, which I didn't realize, and I'm really excited about this, is they now have ultrasounds, which have been validated against biopsies to show that they can they can predict muscle glycogen. Wow. Uh, it's just just with an ultrasound, so you can basically scan an ultrasound on somebody's vastus lateralis and get a good proxy indicator of, of how much glycogen is still left in that muscle. And so I think that um, you know because traditionally you got to stick a needle in someone's leg, and you know and Zach knows that ain't no fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we can do this, we can get a lot more information in these low carb carnivore athletes now and I, you know i'm just i'm just you know like i said I, that's something that i think would be exciting to do and, and, and see what's going on with glycogen because i still use glucose i mean glucose is still an important part of what i do and what zach does and what we all do I mean, we, you know it's not like where our glucose goes to zero i mean even though you know you, you're i'm sure you're well cahill studies where he got people's glucose down into even as low as 10 i think and as long as the ketones were super high you could maintain perfusion but i think that's a different that's a different beast than trying to maximally do some sort of, you know, athletic activity where I think, where I think glucose is definitely does have its place. And, you know, and, and when you access it, um, I know like when I was doing lactate testing for my rowing, uh, you know, I would, and, and what I do is very lactate intense and it's, and it's not comfortable, but I found that my ability to hit, you know, harder and harder outputs 
with less discomfort and pain is probably has to do with me probably utilizing less less of the glycolytic system and use and generate as much lactate. So I'm actually, you know, maybe my threshold is a little higher before I start turning that on. I think that's an advantage in itself for, for, for the type of sprint work I do. And then again, the power works a little bit different and obviously Zach's in a different zone and there's all sorts of differences in different athletes, but I'm, you know, like I said, I'm in, I'm in contact uh, with a number of Olympians now that are doing this diet. I am in contact with an Olympic, you know, an Olympic coach consulted with me and he says he's got two or three of his athletes uh, and I'm not going to name who it is because I don't really want to be revealed, but that are doing the carnivore diet and they're hitting PRs. And, and these are sports that, you know, many people would say that wouldn't be a good fit. So it's, it's interesting to see what's going to happen here in the, in the next. You know, Sean, it's interesting. The, the carnivore diet, I believe, is quite different. Or there are significant tangible differences in athletes from a, even a ketogenic diet. And I think in the keto diet, it is a low-carb diet. A carnivore diet is pretty much a no-carbohydrate diet and a much higher, as you said, percentage of protein going in. But you've also got the fat going in. And I think the, one of the key things about um, the liver, and I, Ben Beckman has got a lot to say about this as well, is under what conditions does the liver, and, and I focus on the liver rather than the muscles, under what conditions does the liver convert amino acids to sugar? And how does that pathway happen? And I think there's some core, some fundamental aspects that most people aren't quite aware of. They think there's this machine where you're turning protein to sugar and the sugar is going straight into the liver. It doesn't work that way. It cycles through glycogen. So um, when you're getting uh, protein being converted to, um, to sugar or to uh, the form of sugar it takes is typically glycogen, and that has to happen when your insulin level is low, the gluconeogenesis is high, and different amino acids cycle through different pathways. You've got three types of amino acids. You've got some that are pure gluconeogenic. They just become sugar. You've got others, uh, there are three of them, that are ketogenic amino acids that actually go toward ketone bodies, and then you've got some that can either go to ketones or to, um, uh, to glucose. And I think one of the key things, and I don't know this, but this is my theory, is that on a pure carnivore diet, you're getting a higher ketogenic amino acid response rather than a pure gluco, uh, uh, gluconeogenic response. In other words, you're not just producing sugar, you're also producing ketones from your amino acids. And remember, when you're exercising, lactate it also enters the gluconeogenic pathway and gets recycled as well, um, particularly when insulin levels are low. And then you've got the slow release of, of, of sugar into your bloodstream, which is not the sugar that's just being newly produced. It's glycogen that's slowly being broken down. So it's a much, much more complex thing than things just going down one pathway or another. And I think the absence of any sugar in the, on a carnivore diet has a significant role to play in terms of how it affects insulin. And when your insulin's super low, it's all, glyco it's all glucagon that's having that effect. On your fat cell release of, of ketones, um, on the uh, um, liver itself, and well, glucagon doesn't really affect the muscles, but the absence of insulin does, or these super low levels of insulin does. And I think that's, we're just starting to get into that. And that's where, Sean, you're doing such really good work, but having someone come behind you and look at some of that biochemistry. And I do think there's a distinct difference between a, a, a fat-adapted pure carnivore and someone on a low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet um, because of the effect on insulin. Does, does that make some sense? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would just, I mean, just to, just to follow up on that, because when you're saying that we've got amino acids that we can trace, 
when they when they when they go through this gluconeogenic process and they produce their their glucose, it turned it goes straight to glycogen. Are we are we radio labeling those? Can, has that been done where we can see that? Is it, I'm just wondering because I'm not I've, that's in new information to me, quite honestly. I'm wondering if we radio t you know they tag the carbon that's on the on the particular amino acid and watch where it went and see if it lands up in glycogen. Is that are you referring to some data that shows that, or where are we? Where I don't, I don't, that's the point, because I don't have data. And the amino acid studies that have been done that I'm aware of, the, the radio labeled amino acid studies, all have mostly alanine, because it's the most ubiquitously available gluconeogenic amino acid. But when you're eating meat, you're getting all 20 amino acids there. And I'm not sure whether they've looked at, the, uh, at, at what happens with complex amino acids, in other words, the full range, versus just alanine. And alanine is the most commonly produced amino acid. It's not an essential amino acid. So we really don't understand, and, and this is the point, is I just don't know. I'm speculating. I, I don't have data to, to look at this. And that's why I think you have just opened the door really in the last year or so to this new realm of, of carnivore training as opposed to ketogenic training. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just, you know, I mean, maybe guys like Stu Phillips or Donald Lehman might have some more insight on that. They may have looked at some of that data that may be out there, and we just have to pick those guys' brain. I think your point about, you know, one of the problems I have with the ketogenic diet now is, is because it can be defined so many different ways. We don't even know what it is. And so, I mean, it's, it's, all we know is it's a ratio of fat, and it can, your fat sources can be whatever, your protein sources can be whatever. It can be plant-based, it can be meat-based, so it's, it's hard to say. But, I mean, you know, a piece of steak is generally going to have the same nutrient profile so you've got a pretty good handle on what that means and i guess you would just look at if you're if you're suggesting that it's got a higher percentage of ketogenic uh amino acids versus you know glucose producing amino acids it'd be simple as just analyzing what's in steak what's the what's the profile it's pretty easily doable and you look at you look at which ones follow which pathway and i think that's probably not a hard situation to solve i mean i think from a general standpoint most people will concede that gluconeogenesis Genesis proceeds in a demand-driven process, uh, and I think there is there is a supply component into, into that to some degree. I mean, you've got to have the supply first of all to, to meet the demand. So if you're if you're not giving yourself, you know, substrate, whether it's lactate, glycerol, or amino acids, then you're going to have a harder time producing that. And I think there's also evidence in the low-carb state we get more efficient. And certainly, there's animal studies that support that we get more efficient with gluconeogenesis, particularly on a higher protein version. So I think we become more efficient at that aspect, whether we become more efficient at ketogenic diet, uh, keto ketosis or generic keto is probably also true. I mean, certainly, but what we do see, and, and, and you know, as Zach can, will attest, and I think Bullock and Finney now will show that as we get better able to utilize those ketones, then we just don't, they just don't show up as much because they're produced and then immediately utilized rather than when we're first starting out, we're wasting, 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 and it's in our breath, in our urine, coming out our skin. Uh, and so, the, you know, there's a lot we can do here. And it's, it's, it's so, I mean, I think the research potential is, is, is enormous, but I, I'm really, you know, like I said, that one skin glycogen ultrasound deal is, is something that I could be a, a very, I mean, you know, if you ain't got a, if you don't got a biopsy, people, man, you can get a lot of data pretty quickly. And I, I think the R value on that was something like 0.9. It was a huge correlation. I mean, it was really good. I mean, it was really reliable with regard to biopsy. And so, um, you know, I think that's exciting. Um, let's, Rob, if you don't mind changing gears a little bit. I mean, I like sure. talking the athletic sure. stuff, but one of the things that you have really started to nail 
down and when we were in Nebraska together, what was it two week, a week and a week ago, a week ago or so, or a week and a half ago, whatever it was, um, you're really sort of hammering home this concept of addiction. And I, you know, obviously I, I like, there's physiology and, you know, it, it, it's very helpful when your physiology is favorable, but you still have to deal with the mental demons and uh, the, the stuff. And so can you kind of just give us an overview of your thoughts regarding addiction, carbohydrate, right? Carbohydrate addiction, because obviously the people you serve are these people that are morbidly obese. And even if you do a, do a gastric sleeve, they still have the psychological component. You can't fix that with surgery. I mean, you've got to do something beyond that. So what is your, give us a rundown on what, if you don't mind the overview on your thoughts on addiction and, and obesity. Sure. So, so we're going to move completely away from anything to do with athletes or anything like that. Uh, really what it comes down to is productive human beings. The, the, um, when you're being productive, when you're putting work into anything, what focused productivity does, um, particularly mental focused productivity, but any kind of productivity is, and I'm going to simplify things a little bit, but when you're really focused in the brain cells, you release a hormone called dopamine and dopamine helps you to focus and it builds up um, in, in quantity and volume in cells. And then, uh, and that process can take anywhere from about 20 to 30 minutes. And then if you think about the window uh, driving in the rain, um, the rain is hitting your windshield and that's dopamine building up and building up in your cells. And then when it gets too much to see, uh, you hit the windshield wiper and for a few seconds you get, a clean window. And the contrast to dopamine, the thing that window washer in the brain is something called serotonin. And you get this discharge of serotonin that releases that dopamine, the dopamine goes down, and then you build up the dopamine again, you release the serotonin. And it's a cyclical pattern. And a healthy dopamine serotonin cycling is what allows us to focus intensely, but we need those breaks. There are a variety of different behaviors and substances that activate the serotonin system. And one of those is uh, sugar, carbohydrates. And it doesn't matter how the sugar goes into your mouth. It's that little snack, that little, and it's a combination of the active consumption plus the, the substance itself. It could be a puff on a cigarette. It could be a shot of whiskey. Um, it could be getting up and stretching. There's a variety of different activators of that serotonin system and pretty much every human being can be defined by the dominant thing that they use to cycle dopamine. The problem with addictive substances is if you use them in a chronic excessive way, and carbohydrates are clearly that serotonin effect, and the way they become addictive is that if you use them excessively or as a dominant, somewhat exclusive way to activate that serotonin system, just like anything, the way the body responds to that is with blockade, with resistance. And now what you're getting is all this dopamine buildup and you need more and more of the carbohydrate release to get the same effect. And you're not getting that, I call it the cooling effect. So the dopamine's building up, building up, you're losing focus um, and you need a bigger and bigger hit and a more frequent hit of your drug to be able to get any form of relaxation. And so you're building up dopamine resistance requiring more of that drug. Well, when you consume carbohydrates in excess over time for that dopamine serotonin cycling and to recapture it, purely by the caloric load, um, under the influence of insulin, you're converting that sugar to fat. 
Um, and that's where the obesogenic part comes in. You're not consuming those carbohydrates for their nutritional value. You're consuming them for their drug value. And over time, on the flip side of that, when your insulin um, builds up, you now start to get insulin resistance in exactly the same way that you get dopamine resistance. And your liver is no longer a primary liver and other tissues is no longer able to clear that sugar. Well, some people can produce a high amount of insulin and they can force the liver to continuously convert sugar to fat. They're obesogenic. On the other side, at some point, you reach a critical threshold where your insulin resistance in the liver cannot be overridden by insulin production. And when that happens, you're no longer able to clear sugar from the liver, uh, it's clear sugar from your bloodstream, and now that sugar builds up in the bloodstream, and guess what that's called over time? That's called diabetes. So based upon insulin production capacity and chronic excessive carbohydrate consumption, you either become obesogenic or uh, diabetogenic, uh, depending on the genetics of insulin production. But ultimately, the trigger is the consumption of that sugar as a dysfunctional way to, to activate the um, dopamine, serotonin cycling. Now, if you've got a diversity of different ways, let's say somebody uh, works out from time to time or stretches or goes for a walk, has a, maybe a spiritual moment, a meditative moment, does something creative, listens to music, has a shot of whiskey, and he eats some carbohydrates, that diverse action doesn't allow for the excess, doesn't allow for the resistance. But if you start to bond more and more with carbohydrates as your singular mechanism of endorphin release, that's where you start to get into that dopamine resistance system. We see that with cocaine, we see it with heroin, um, and then your whole body starts to require the drug just to be normal, just to be able to function. And that's an incredibly difficult dependency to break. So when people go on a ketogenic diet, okay, I'm, I'm heavy, I realize it's carbohydrates, and they go from being this insulin-resistant, high-carbohydrate-consuming person, and they adopt a ketogenic diet the next day. They started, they cut out carbohydrates. There's a massive detoxification that happens. They're still insulin-resistant. They feel awful. And that's kind of the keto flu that is both physiologic, but it's also an incredible uh, mental deprivation. I mean, you can ask an, an addict to anything else conventional. When you withdraw opioids, when you withdraw alcohol, even when you withdraw nicotine, there's a massive mental response to that absence. And when people withdraw carbohydrates in a day, I'm going to start my ketogenic diet today, that's the mental aspect that happens. And a lot of people just can't sustain themselves through that, so they find ways to go back to carbohydrates, or they fail the diet in the first few days. The correct way to do it is to treat it as a drug and to slowly withdraw it and replace it with other ways. And if you slowly categorize that withdrawal, you don't get the keto flu. You can also, from a mental perspective, um, be able to accommodate a little bit easier over that ensuing month or so that it takes to come off the carbohydrates. But carbohydrates, we know, particularly uh, when they're glucose in the bloodstream, glucose fructose, light up the exact same pathways in the brain that cocaine does, that alcohol does, that the opioids do. And if you ask an obese person or a person with type 2 diabetes, that attachment is exactly the same as whether they smoked, whether they are alcoholics. Um, so we really need to transform our thinking of obesity and type 2 diabetes away from this being a nutritional problem and more and more being 
an addictive substance abuse problem. And, and you know this well, I think, uh, you know, Sean, your whole carnivore diet experience is it is absolutely fine to eat, no, to not eat carbohydrates, at least as an adult. Maybe as a kid, you need, as a growing little baby, you need some carbohydrates. Uh, they're obligate carbohydrate uh, requires. But once you get to be an adult, you do not need carbohydrates. And therefore, there is no feedback control on the amount you consume. There's absolute feedback control over how much water you drink. So when you're thirsty, you start to drink as soon as you're thirsty. You test onto your brain that says stop. There is no stopping point for alcohol because it's not an essential, essential uh, uh, to human survival. There's very, very tight stopping points protein and fat. And it's primarily mediated by fat. Uh, there's five hormones through the GI tract plus leptin from the fat cells that very rapidly give you a queasy sensation when you're eating a high fat diet. And that's why the fat is so important uh, together with your protein to stopping what you're eating. And that controls your, your, your appetite even though you're full. But there is no stopping point for sugar or starch. Even you, Sean, who eats a massive amount of steak, there is a stopping point. I'm full, I'm done. And five minutes later, you're not going to be eating more steak, but you could conceivably eat some cheesecake or some carrot or some uh, chips or ice cream or sit in front of the TV with a bag of popcorn. You're not sitting there eating more steak because your body ha is full from food and that satiety signal lasts for a long time. But there is no satiety for the drug called carbohydrates. So if we look at carbohydrates from an addiction, from a substance abuse perspective, rather than from a caloric perspective, and our treatment algorithm follows more of a drug rehab program rather than a nutritional depletion or a removal program, people are going to be much, much more effective at sustaining a ketogenic diet. Those are some great points. Um, I just, you know, when we talk about low, I mean, zero carbohydrates or carbohydrates, obviously they're not essential. I mean, we're clearly this basic biochemistry tells us what we do and do not need and carbohydrates aren't in there. There are people that will argue that they have benefits outside of essential need. Um, and then I, your, your point about obligate children being obligate. And I think that, you know, if we look at the composition of breast, breast milk, obviously there's lactose in there. And so they're, they're getting their sugar how long that remains to be the case. I mean, traditional weaning for human, if we look at indigenous people, it's something like two and a half years or something like that. Do you feel that beyond that, uh, our kids are, they, they still need to con continue to do that? I mean, obviously knowing that, well, I mean, there's a lot of things going on. We're, we're growing, obviously brain growth is, is, particularly in those first two years, it's, it's huge. And then it continues to about age six. And then it kind of slows down but continues we see brain maturing till i think age 25 now is where we're putting putting brain maturity occurring so where do you see the essentiality of carbohydrates stopping at an age because i know you do pediatric uh, is what you do with your with your with your practice right i, I do think that both in the fetus and in the uh, newborn baby they are uh, carbohydrates are essential to them uh, just think about this that the brain ratio is one to three in a baby and one to eight Actually, in my case, it's about 12 to 8. But um, in other words, my brain's very small. That's why I'm a surgeon. But the point is, it's about 8 to 1 in, in adults. So 75% of all the energy that is utilized by a newborn baby is used by the brain. And a lot of that is ketones because the substrates can't cross the blood-brain barrier very easy. So ketones and glucose cross very easily. 
over time, that requirement diminishes as the body starts, to, starts using more. And the other part also is the liver becomes more adept at creating new sugar. So early on, you do need that sugar maintenance from the diet. But over time, as the liver becomes more gluconeogenic, you can diminish the sugar. And I agree with you, it's probably in the two to three, maybe up to three and a half range where the, the human brain particularly, that's the, that's the key thing that we're supplying the substrate, needs a combination of fat, essential fat, the three and six omega fatty acids, ketones, and also sugar. But over time, the liver can start taking that responsibility so the mouth doesn't have to. But here's the key thing. If the liver is going to take responsibility for producing sugar for the brain, it has to come from gluconeogenesis. And the best form of gluconeogenesis is protein. So the, the appropriate, I mean, the logical thing is to wean a baby onto a ketogenic diet. So you cross over from milk, which is also a, a to a large degree, a ketogenic diet. It's got a, a milk has a lot of fat in it, and especially the, the essential fatty acids, um, based on mom's diet a little bit, but mostly it's a very high saturated fat diet. Um, and slowly wean that child onto protein and fat. So uh, an animal product is probably the single best source for weaning that baby rather than plant-based material. And I think that to give your child, your, your growing baby, the best advantage from two perspectives. Number one, from the ketogenic brain growth and, and body development perspective, you're giving them the greatest bang for their buck if you're feeding them meat. But secondly, if you can keep their blood sugar at a relatively uh, stable level, which is gluconeogenesis, kind of keeps it fairly, uh, fairly normal at about the 70 to 75 uh, um, milligram mark rather than up to the 100 mark, that baby is not imprinting. It is not getting any emotional reprieve from the consumption of that sugar. In other words, it's, it's using the sugar as an energy substrate, not as a drug. And remember this, Sean, in the, in the United States of America right now, the largest growing demographic of obesity is in two to five-year-olds, okay? Never ever before in our history, if you just think about one thing, if you look at the advent of um, a disease called attention deficit, whether it's hyperactive or just attention deficit, it coincided completely with the, with the increase in sugar in our diet. That's not, that's not just a, uh, a, a parallel, that is a direct consequence. These children, these babies are, are using sugar as a drug and it's just driving them crazy. The ADHD and the ADD uh, occurred, Eisenberg described it in the 1950s for the first time. It really didn't exist prior to that because of the carbohydrate consumption at that early age. So with withdrawing from them from breast milk in particular at an earlier age, and we're starting to wean them onto either plant-based or primarily sugar-based uh, uh, foods. And that's become more and more prevalent. And these kids become drug addicts before they're five years old. Hey, Robert, do you think that, I mean, because there's an interuterine environment and we have moms that are very often hyperinsulinemic, uh, you know, they, they have gestational diabetes. Um, how, how is that impact? Because, I mean, I, you know, we're seeing this, you know, obesity, which obviously is not a genetic thing. I mean, we can't just point to, you know, three generations back and say, look at all the morbidly obese people because they weren't there. So you can't develop a genetic pre 
predisposition to morbid obesity in one or two generations. That's just not how, it, obviously it doesn't work that way. So do you think there's these epigenetic things that are going on, but you know, being passed down from mom to child, do you think the intrauterine environment now is so potentially pathologic in regards to diabetic pathophysiology that these fetuses are being, you know, you know I think Jason phone calls them marinated in glucose. I mean, what is that doing in addition to the, the early, you know, weaning onto the cereals and the, and the, and the sugary fruit roll, the, 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 you know, I, you know, the baby food, you go, you look at it and you, you just don't want to shake your head when you go through the baby food aisle and it's, it's kind of scary, but. Sean, Sean let me correct you. It's not baby food. It's baby milkshakes. Okay. <laughs> it is not food. It has no nutritional value. Oh, they sprinkle some DHA and EPA. They sprinkle some three omega fatty acids, but you can dress it, turn it up any which way you want to. It's littered. Sorry. I, I'm, but but, but to, to come back to your point, I think the, the entirety of a baby's future starts in utero, both psychologically as well as somatically. And part of the issue is insulin. The, the liver starts being able to uh, produce sugar at eight weeks of gestation. Insulin production starts around seven to eight weeks of gestation. So it's very, very early on, before a lot of women even know they're pregnant, um, that liver is already functioning. So the baby is able to produce and control its own sugar environment. However, if mom is a chronic excessive carbohydrate consumer, particularly in the first trimester or so, that high level of sugar, remember sugar in, in, in anybody, uh, blocks fat utilization. And the thing that's developing most in that early uh, um, eight to 12 week period is the neural tube. What's the neural tube? It is the precursor for the human brain and the human spine. So already at that early age, and, and all of that, almost all of the human brain is fat. 65 to 70% is fat. In fact, uh, 75 to 80% of the Schwann cells, the white matter of the brain, is fat with about a 15% protein uh, ratio and a very high cholesterol ratio. So what happens is that um, fetal brain is not able to develop adequately because it is under the influence of insulin and sugar and you don't have the fat substrates there. And already at a very, very early age, some of the white matter fails to develop. The other part also is that the baby, especially a, under, before the third trimester, um, where in the first two trimesters, you're really building organs and tissue. Um, if you look at a premature baby of about 25 to 28 weeks, if they skin and bone, uh, there is no fat on those babies at all. That premature baby has no fat. So, but if you look at the baby of a diabetic mother that's born at 25 or 26 weeks, they're already fat. And their muscle ratio is not there. They're floppy babies. We know the, the babies of a diabetic mother have no tissue integrity. They're floppy. Their nerves don't work properly. Those are all the defects that sugar causes in that embryogenesis as that baby uh, develops. So they are... Uh, structural brain issues, there are structural body issues, and you've got this misplaced ratio of subcutaneous fat in that middle trimester, uh, which just shouldn't be there. The baby should be building muscle and skeleton and, and that type of thing. The other critical thing about a mom that consumes a lot of carbohydrate in, during pregnancy, there is a sevenfold higher rate of fetal demise in a mom that's diagnosed with type 2 diabetes prior to 26 weeks of gestation. The, the fetal death rate is through the roof. I mean, there's a, a seven-fold increase of fetal loss just because the mother is a type 2 diabetic. And by the time they're type 2 diabetics, it's way down that 
down that pathway. So there are huge issues that are happening with the development of that baby. Then on top of that, you've got a psychological, what we call imprinting. So every time the mother's stressed, it's not just the mom getting stressed, there are catecholamines, certain uh, um, hormones that get released in a stress response, adrenaline, cortisol. And if the mom then consumes a sugar load, which activates her insulin, activates those other hormones to get rid of that stress effect, she's using carbohydrates as a drug to deal with her emotional tension, the baby senses that at a hormonal level, and that's imprinted. And then subsequently, when that baby is exposed to sugar when it's born, it revokes those same pathways. And we see that with cocaine babies, we've seen it with crack babies, um, and we certainly see it with sugar-addicted babies. So there's a psychologic imprinting effect, as well as a structural maldevelopment of those babies. And then if you're eating a lot of sugar in the third trimester, these babies become enormous. They have a tremendous obesogenic effect. So if you look at babies that are 11, 12, 13 pounds at birth, way, way bigger. They're these big, floppy, fat babies because all that sugar has been turned to fat. And the baby has to be born by C-section. If they go to labor, there are a lot of labor complications. And then as soon as the baby's born, now you suddenly cut off that sugar uh, source. And these babies can go profoundly hypoglycemic at birth. And we know that hypoglycemia can damage the brain. So if that isn't picked up in the NICU, these babies suffer significant hypoxemia and a lack of, gluc uh, of glucose to the brain. And that affects them dramatically. So a lot of these kids are now on insulin and sugar drips when they IVs when right after they're born to combat that hypoglycemia. So the, the and I'm just kind of, putting this in lay terms, you can go through the science of this, but the effects of, a, of diabetes in pregnancy is an awful, awful problem. Uh, the final thing I'll say on that subject, and this is where our, our obstetricians maybe have made a bit of a mistake, is that it really isn't about being diabetic. By the time a mom has been diagnosed as having gestational diabetes, it's way too late. It takes time for that diabetes to get to the point where it's measurable. It's the hyperinsulinemia that affects baby's growth. And that occurs weeks before they're actually diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So, um, you know, we miss the boat very often. But these babies are really, really at a disadvantage. Uh, and that's the obvious diabetics. But if a mom is on a standard American diet, let's say 55 to 60% carbohydrate, you're having the same effect to a lesser degree. And that in and of itself probably reduces genetic potential for that baby to the be, be the best it can be, both mentally and physically. Are there, are there, are there, I want to make one comment in there. I know because I've seen people that are going a zero carb or carnivore pregnancy, and they generally will fail, a, you know, a oral glucose tolerance test, which makes sense, and they'll get labeled as gestational diabetes when we know that they just don't have the capacity to mount a insulin response against an acute bolus of glucose like they would if they were chronically exposed to that. So there's, so I think those women are misdiagnosed and, and we, you know, people have talked about physiological insulin resistance or adaptive glucose sparing, whatever you want to call it, but that's currently happening. I want to talk a little, cause you brought up, you know, adrenaline and, and cortisol a little bit. A lot of people are critical of being on a long-term ketogenic or even a carnivore diet due to concerns about excessive chronic elevation of cortisol. Do you have any sort of uh, thoughts on that particular uh, concern? Yeah, so, so let me just, uh, uh, you said something important there about the, um, 
um, about a ketogenic diet uh, or carnivore diet in pregnancy. I just want to answer that because that's an important point. Most obstetricians still use something called the craft tables or the craft graphs, and there's different types of craft responses to a glucose tolerance test. We eat some sugar and they measure the sugar. That is a bit of an archaic test. What they should be measuring is insulin. And if you measure insulin along with sugar, you'll see in the carnivore diet, it's a whole different table than the craft 3, uh, 3B5 uh, test that we see with diabetics. So most obstetricians just measure sugar in their, in their glucose tolerance test. They don't measure sugar and insulin, and they need to take that out six to eight hours. And if you measure sugar and insulin, you'll see exactly what you talked about, which is this hyper-responding, uh, hyper-insulin response. So uh, um, that was, that's just a, a, a variant of it's, it's the test that's the problem, not the diet that's the problem. Does that make sense? The next issue when you talk about, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, that, that, I mean, I, I agree. And I mean, we could talk about Joseph Kraft and the, you know, the, the stuff he did in the seventies with the insulin and maybe we should be measuring insulin instead, but. All right, folks, this episode of human performance outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a meat delivery company that brings you high quality beef, chicken, pork, salmon, and scallops. What does this mean? All products are natural and humanely raised or sustainably wild caught, as is the case with their salmon and scallops. If you are concerned with how the animals you eat were raised, rest assured, ButcherBox partners with farmers who are inspired by Dr. Temple Grandin, a member of the Humane Farm Animal Care Program's scientific committee. Their beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished, the chicken is organic and the pork is heritage breed with no added sugar. So head over to butcherbox.com and place an order today. And don't forget to enter promo code HPO for a discount. Thank you for supporting one of our longstanding sponsors. Now back to the show. Um, yeah, let's talk about cortisol. Right, cortisol. So, so cortisol is one of the triggers it's one of the primary triggers for glucagon release of sugar into the bloodstream so uh, all of these hormones interplay when you're in a gluconeogenic response everyone thinks of gluconeogenesis as the manufacture of sugar from other substrates be it glycerol fat or amino acids but part of that whole pathway is the release the sluice release of sugar from the liver the liver is almost never empty of glycogen. It always will keep some. It's a 1,6 and a 1,4 alpha bonds that it, it retains, but the liver will always have some stored glycogen. Because if you think about this, in the old days when you walk around a rock and there's a saber-toothed tiger, you don't want your liver suddenly to go into sugar-making mode, uh, mode. By the time you've got enough sugar made, you've, you're uh, you know, a carnivore's uh, dinner. What you want is a release of the sugar that's in the liver. And that's the cortisol effect. Cortisol triggers that. And your cortisol is a very short-lived response. So what you get is not cortisol up all the time, it's cortisol cycling. And that is a completely normal response. The dawn effect, for example, when somebody wakes up, if you're wearing a continuous glucose monitor, as I often do, my basal sugar while I'm asleep is 65. As soon as I wake up, before anybody can stick a needle in their finger, nobody can stick a needle in their finger while they're asleep. 
and test their blood sugar, but a CGM gives you that reading while you're asleep, my sugar will bump up without eating or drinking anything by 20 to 30 points in the morning, and I'm a fat-adapted person um, who's got a low insulin. My insulin level is below four. Um, that is a cortisol effect. So cortisol is critical in a carnivore or ketogenic diet to being the trigger for the release of sugar from your bloodstream. When you're, when you're tired, it, it functions. That's why your blood sugar may be a little bit higher when you're exhausted. When you're in caffeine, it lowers it down, it dumps down that cortisol response. So cortisol is a hormone that is very, very short-lived, but is critically important to the backstory control of your blood sugar. It's not just glucagon and insulin. Um, and people do not get into a, quarter, a continuous cortisol response. The only time that happens is if you've got a tumor that is mass-producing cortisol. It is a response to a whole stimulus of fright and flight, the adrenal response. But when you're asleep, that goes way down. And it goes way, way down in uh, people that are, are fat adapted. I've never had blood sugar in the 60s, in the high 50s, low 60s, until I became fat adapted. And if I fall out of ketosis, and as a fat guy, I've done that from time to time with the relapse, my, my blood sugars, my fasting blood, my sleeping blood sugars are much higher. That's not a cortisol response. That is a, uh, an insulin and glucagon, and glucagon response. So cortisol is an irrelevant hormone to really worry about in terms of being a problem when you're on a carnivore diet. Cortisol is doing its job. I would tell you that probably on a, on a standard American diet or in diabetes, the absence of cortisol to trigger that glucagon effect, or even worse, paradoxical hyperglycemia when your blood sugar is already high. So what does that mean? That means that for some diabetics, the, the glucagon control, at least the insulin control of glucagon is gone. And glucagon is functioning by itself, and insulin is functioning by itself. So when you eat a, let's say you eat a pizza, or you eat some ice cream, if you're, if you're that dysregulated diabetic, your blood sugar goes up, but glucagon doesn't stop releasing sugar into the bloodstream. So even though you've got a high blood sugar, you haven't switched off gluconeogenesis because insulin and glucagon should be regulating each other. They don't directly regulate the sugar, they regulate each other and this is up and down. If they're dysregulated, now you've got glucagon working all the time and cortisol then becomes that added trigger. And those people then become resistant to insulin. And I see that in my, my high insulin producing type 2 diabetics, where they're injecting more and more insulin, but they can't control their blood sugar, even when they're not eating. And when they're not eating, that's the glucagon response. So, and that's regulated to a certain extent by cortisol, but it's that paradoxical glucagon re release. I know I got off topic on the, on the cortisol, but I don't see cortisol, I don't have evidence of this, but I don't see cortisol as being a significant response. I've got a quick question with the cortisol. Like, so if the cortisol, because it, sometimes it just gets a kind of a negative rap, um, is that more because of the the timing of it all or the circadian rhythm? Because I could imagine, like, just like that cortisol response is beneficial in the morning, so you kind of start your day energetically. If you get that cortisol response, say at like eight or nine p.m. when you're trying to go to sleep, or if it if you get a cortisol response in the middle of the night and it causes you to wake up for hours. Uh, it's, it's, I guess, there's poor timing or circadian rhythm-based then? or Yeah, I think, you know, the first, I want to step back and just make a generalization. God and nature is not trying to kill us. 
So all these functions are, the interplay of all these functions are vitally necessary over hundreds of thousands of years have evolved to protect us from the environment and from ourselves. And when you say cortisol, we can measure a hormone called cortisol. But when we're using cortisol the way you just used it, it isn't just cortisol, the hormone. It's not about the biochemistry of cortisol. We're using cortisol as a word to describe a variety of catecholamines that trigger urgent responses, flight and flight responses, wake up responses. Um, and part of, so there's, there's two systems at, at work here when it comes to sleep. I'll just address that in a second. But ultimately, that catecholamine response is responsible for giving us the energy to do certain tasks and to focus and do certain functions. And part of that's mediated through sugar, part of it is also mediated through ketones, and part of it is mediated through what's happening in, in the brain. So cortisol has brain effects, the catecholamines have brain effects as well. They keep us alert and awake, even though we may be exhausted, we haven't slept for a while. And part of the system, I talked about this earlier on, is that you've got tryptophan, which is an amino acid. Tryptophan gets converted to serotonin. And the breakdown, serotonin is your awake hormone. It keeps you awake. And then you've got another hormone, which is you alter serotonin slightly, and you've got a hormone called melatonin. And melatonin is your sleep hormone. And serotonin is activated by cortisol. It's part of the cortisol release. And if you're activating cortisol in the middle of the night, and it's releasing serotonin, your melatonin goes down and you're awake. And then you've got all this stuff. You wake up in the middle of the night and you've got all this stuff going on. But, but look at that interplay. You've got an amino acid that's becoming a, uh, a, a mental control hormone called serotonin, including the sleeping hormone called melatonin. So all of that is in the direct pathway. And if you don't have adequate tryptophan, which is one of the things they look at in um, certain of the depressive episodes, people that get depression, and they use SSRI, serotonin uptake inhibitors, to increase the amount of serotonin. Those people often don't have enough tryptophan, the amino acid, as part of their diet. So if you're on a carnivore diet or you're, on, or you're eating an adequate amount of tryptophan, now that system's working well, and it's much more sensitive to cortisol. So there's an interplay of all these different systems, and I don't have all the answers, but what I can look back, look back and, and say that the human body is an incredibly complex system, and the mistake we probably make more than anything else is to dumb it down in terms of just glucagon or just cortisol or just insulin. Your body doesn't work that way. Everything interplays. And by the way, Zach, um, when you're talking about uh, three hormones, cortisol, human growth hormone, and thyroid hormone, T2, T3, T4, mm -hmm. do you know what the original precursor of all those hormones are? In fact, I'll give you six. Estrogen, testosterone, T3, T4, human growth hormone, cortisol, and vitamin D3. You know what the common precursor to all of those is? What's that? Cholesterol. Hmm. The human body takes cholesterol and, and produces all of the steroid hormones from cholesterol. And it's, for example, when you're producing estrogen, there are 21 enzyme changes down the pathway to produce estrogen. And guess what insulin does? High insulin blocks the very first step of the conversion of cholesterol downstream. So people that are high insulin producers typically don't have, uh, they're not vulnerable to diabetes, to type 2 diabetes. They're the more the obesogenic people, but they have androgen deficiency. 
And in females, those people can it's seen as PCOS. In males, they have low testosterone, and they may have low human growth hormone, low cortisol levels, or they can't produce cortisol effectively, as well as T3 and T4. And that affects inflammation, it affects cancer risk, and it affects energy levels. So there's an interplay of insulin in all those regulatory factors. And, and that becomes so crucial depending on some of the genetics and some of the triggers that we have. But all of that interplays because you need human growth hormone T3, T4, and cortisol for energy, for inflammation, and for cancer surveillance. And if those are low, you're vulnerable to those issues. That's one of the reasons why on a carnivore diet, it's not just a direct anti-inflammatory effect. There is a lipid in the uh, cell membranes that's affected, but it's also through that whole hormonal milieu. So one of the interesting things, and, and Sean, I think you'll appreciate this, when they talk about visceral fat being dangerous, that's not true. It's not the proximity of fat to your organs that causes cardiovascular harm. It is the pathway by which it got there. And if you look at, especially men, these guys with these big beer bellies and their legs look like little toothpicks, that is a testosterone function. In the high, in the high insulin producers, they don't produce testosterone, they produce more estrogen, and they look more fluffy, almost like a eunuch, you know, where all the fat is between the muscle and the subcutaneous tissue, where if you've got high testosterone, your, your vulnerability to diabetes is much higher because you can't produce a lot of insulin. So you're still producing a lot of testosterone, which which gives you a male distribution of fat accumulation, but it's the link between high testosterone and type 2 diabetes that causes the cardiovascular effect. So all of these things are interrelated. I know I'm bouncing around in some of these thoughts, but you can't just look at one hormone or one process. It's the entire interplay. Um, and sometimes we simplify things in an observational way too much. Um, you know, same thing when you're running, when, you, when you're in a race act, at the beginning of the race, even a guy like you is probably a little bit apprehensive. You've got a catecholamine surge at the beginning of the race. That affects the energy substrate. And then as the race goes along, as you kind of get into a meditative state, I'm sure you get inside your head when you're running and it's almost like you're in your subconscious state, you're not even in your conscious state. Some of those catecholamines are now down. And the, the entire release of some of those substrates changes through the race. And mm -hmm. part of what you have to learn is at different stages of, the, of, a, of a race or of a training session, depending on what's happening with those hormones, to feed it slightly different substrates. So all of those things interplay. I just can't quantify that directly. Sure. Yeah, no, and I think that's why I've always found it kind of silly that you'll, you'll see folks at the start of a race hitting glucose before the race even started. Because, I mean, just the nerves and the cortisol release you're going to get from that alone would, would, would release, you know, enough. You know, you just don't need it. You don't need an exogenous source at that point in the race, I wouldn't think. Um, but uh, I guess unless you're so dependent on it and you, you're trying to, like, preload a little bit more yet. But I think at that point, you've probably backed yourself into a bit of a, a dependency corner on, on carbohydrates, certainly within the context of ultramarathon stuff. Um, but yeah, I had one other question related to like the cortisol, because I was told once that, uh, um, that when like, well, let's just say, let me give you like a scenario where let's say I'd like, I woke up in the morning, I did like a really big training session. And later in that afternoon, uh, I was like pretty tired from the, the, the big training stimulus stimulus. So I kind of set left with two options to like take a nap and just, you know, 
for like 90 minutes or whatever, or, you know, drink a cup of coffee and kind of break through that like grogginess or that tiredness. And I was told when you do in a situation like that, if you go the route of the caffeine, you're essentially spiking your cortisol, which is going to give you the energy to push through that low. But by doing that, you're, you're, you're down-regulating your body's natural production of human growth hormone, which it's actually wanting to release to kind of remedy the, the workload you just did. So you'd be better off actually laying down and taking a nap if you have that opportunity. I, you know, by chemically, by pathways, um, I don't have data I can re rely on, but from a biological perspective, that, that seems entirely appropriate. The reason your body wants to take that nap is because there's been a depletion that needs that restoration. And if that cortisol effect is, is lower, you've used up your cortisol during the run, I agree that artificially stimulating that with caffeine is probably has a, an immediate positive effect with a delayed negative effect. And it may, be, it may play through HGH, it may play through other catecholamines. And there's a, you know, we don't really talk very much about the role that uh, T3 and T4, particularly uh, T3, thyroid hormone, um, triiodothyronine uh, plays in the regulation of uh, our metabolism. It has a profound effect, and it's not just metabolic rate, but it also is a big player in this. So you've got multiple levels. You've got your thyroid hormone release, you've got your human growth hormone and cortisol release, and caffeine is an obligate stimulant. It stimulates everything. In fact, in babies, we use caffeine to get them to breathe. So we feed newborn babies that have central apnea, we feed them caffeine to stimulate them to breathe. So, yeah, caffeine excites you, but there is, there's a compensating crash afterwards, and it's both a mental crash as well as a hormonal crash. And I think um, taking the rest, when your body signals, hey, I need to have a little bit of a nap, it's probably a good idea to do that if you possibly can. Um, yeah. I wanted to comment, you know, one of the, the, the and it's interesting uh, talking about the uh, obesity patterns and seeing that, the, you know, the males, particularly with the large, you know, visceral fat guts and we see this among competitive bodybuilders that are taking all kinds of exogenous testosterone or androgens and they get these swollen you know even though they're lean and they're muscular and they've got abs but they've got this big bloated gut filled with visceral fat most likely and you know it's kind of interesting we had uh, dr shona mara on yesterday and his thing is he's just all about visceral fat and he's mriing everybody and he's seeing you know, reductions in visceral fat when we, when we go on a carnivore diet. And, and I think that's very sort of uh, nice to talk about the fact that, you know, it's not the visceral fat. It is the, again, the milieu, the hormonal thing. And, and I've, I've, made, I've said this, made this point many times, you know, there are so many complexities and layers upon layers and interactions upon interaction. And it's not as, and we, we do tend to dumb it down. We've got one, you know, we do, we dumb it down with everything in medicine. We got one risk factor, cholesterol, by God, let's get everybody's down. You know, we, we've got, you know, glucose, by God, let's get as low as, you know, there, there's all these just, you know, one factors that we're trying to manipulate, and, you know, particularly with pharmacotherapy, which never really works with the darn with, with when it comes to outcomes. You know, we can lower somebody's, you know, cholesterol, glucose through drugs, and the outcome is not much better. If we do a lifestyle and we do the right lifestyle and fix the whole package, it seems to work more. But with regard to visceral fat, he said something along the lines, because, you know, my, my assumption was, high triglycerides equals high visceral fat. And he basically said, I think he more or less said that that seems to be the case. Now you, you're shaking your head mm -hmm. that triglycerides don't seem to impact visceral fat or where, where, where is that? What is the 
So you said it's a process. So what is a process that's leading to visceral fat? Well, if we want to talk about, you know, I know we talked about insulin, glucagon, uh, sugar consumption. Uh, I mean, there's some people who throw seed oil in there as, as, as a potential confounder. But, uh, you know, when we look at what, what our blood type looks at, particularly when we look at lipidology, we're going to see low triglycerides and, you know, LDL cholesterol is going to be variably high, low, or, or, you know, in the middle. I don't know. So what are your thoughts around, you know, visceral, just delve a little bit more in the, 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 the visceral fat pathophysiology. Sure. I, and I think, uh, let's just go to the triglycerides first. The word triglyceride just means there's three fats connected by something called glycerol. And that is the way the human body transports fat. And depending on the types of fat, the length of those chains, they typically start at about 16 carbon molecules, which is palmitic acid, and then you add carbon molecules on. Depending on the length of that fat and the nature of that fat determines how the fat is transported in the bloodstream. So when you consume sugar, when the liver converts sugar to fat, it primarily produces the shortest long-chain fatty acid called palmitic acid, and the triglycerides that get produced from the conversion of sugar to fat accumulate in the liver. A fatty liver is not the consumption of fat, it's the consumption of sugar that is being stored in the liver. It's the overconsumption of sugar that basically think of it as a conveyor belt that's kind of broken. And then once the, the fat, uh, uh, the triglycerides that are made from sugar, the way they get transported around the body is free in the serum, free in the blood, attached to a protein called globulin. So when you eat a lot of carbohydrates, by virtue and under the influence of insulin, you're converting that sugar to fat. That type of fat gets transported free in the blood and your triglyceride number, which you measure in your lipid panel, your triglycerides go up. If on the other hand, you're transporting fat, either from the fat cells to your tissues or from the from the tissues, the liver to the, to the fat cells, the longer chain fatty acids, they are not conjugated to, to globulin. They don't get transported free in the, in the lipid. So there's got to be a carrier. There's got to be a molecule that carries fat around the human body when the, when the source of the fat is the longer chains or the uh, polyunsaturated fats. So, and the, the carrier molecule, the barge that transports those is called LDL. Okay, so when I eat a steak, when I eat fat, that goes to chylomicrons to my fat cells, and then when that goes from there to my body, it gets transported in LDL. So LDL comes in two forms. You get a small empty molecule called LDLB, and it's got cholesterol and apple proteins, but it's devoid of fat on the inside, triglycerides on the inside. And then when it gets loaded up, it fills up with fat, and it becomes this huge, big, LDL, same molecule, but now it's called LDLA. So you've got these two particles, you've got B and A. B is empty and A is full. And if you think about A and B, B stands for LDL bad. It's associated with bad outcomes. And LDLA is awesome. It's, it's associated with healthy outcomes. Why? Because when you're transporting all the fat that you made from sugar, when you eat a lot of sugar, and we know that sugar damages blood vessels, so sugar causes that injury, but sugar is now being converted to fat, which is being transported in the fattest triglycerides. Your triglycerides are high, and your LDL-B, empty cholesterol, is high because you've got no fat to fill the LDL. On the other hand, when you're eating fat, your triglycerides are low because you're not converting sugar to triglycerides, and your LDL-A goes up, which is the healthy LDL, because fat doesn't damage blood vessel walls. So when people look at LDL, 
don't just look at the LDL, look at LDL in the context of triglycerides. And you can pretty much make the assumption when your triglycerides are low, you've got healthy LDL, good LDL that does not need a statin. On the other hand, if it's bad, if it's the B cholesterol and your triglycerides are high, that is associated with cardiovascular risk. So that's just a general LDL picture, but we usually use the calculated LDL. Now, what happens then is under the influence of that insulin, you've now got a blockage of cholesterol downstream to testosterone in a male, or you've got testosterone production in a female. So in the females, if you look at someone with PCOS, they typically have low estrogen, high testosterone levels. And in males who cannot produce, the opposite is the females. Males who cannot produce a lot of insulin, they continue to produce a lot of testosterone. So the normal pathway in a male is the production of testosterone. The normal production in a female is estrogen. When you block a female, she produces more testosterone, so she starts to look androgenic, the visceral fat happens. In a male, if, you, if you're a high insulin producer, you block the production of testosterone, and there's peripheral conversion of DHEA to estrogen, and they look fluffy and eunuchy. It's testosterone that determines the accumulation of visceral fat. And testosterone is associated with cardiovascular injury. In the males, it's associated with a diabetogenic uh, picture, which is a high blood sugar, and we know that that elevated glucose, like nicotine, damages the endothelial cells of that blood vessel. You see how it's all interrelated? And in the females, when their uh, um, insulin level is high, they also have the same diabetogenic effect um, of the elevated blood sugar. So the visceral fat is not the problem. It's how the visceral fat got there under the influence of testosterone. Does that make sense to you? It does. I want to, I want to stay on this topic of fatty liver because you and I had a nice long conversation about fatty liver and you've talked about the fact that you have seen reversal of fatty liver in, in a week in your patients and you've documented it with biopsies and that sort of thing. And before we get into that, I want to just, you know, there are some people out there and, and I see it all the time in the carnivore community, people will get fatty liver go away. I mean, it's, they're eating meat and their liver, fatty liver is going away. Now, some people will say that is because of general energy reduction in calories or energy. I mean, you're just, you're just, you're satiated. You're just not taking any more calories. If I'm eating fatty meat past satiety, you know, for some reason, say I can do that, say I can eat and I can gain body fat. Is my liver going to get fat? Is it, is it a strictly a insulin carbohydrate mechanism? Is it just excess energy, or is it specific to a particular type of energy being, you know, glucose rather than fat or fatty acids? What are your thoughts on that? And then we can talk about your particular experience with with your bariatric surgery and how you're seeing all these fatty livers go away. Right. So I have data on this, Sean. My PhD was done in liver transplantation, and the thought at the time, this is 1990. The thought at the time was when you transplanted livers from a donor to a, um, to a, a new host, there was a period of time where the liver was outside the body. And we had a condition called primary non-function, where you transplanted the liver, it didn't work. And the theory was that it was because the liver did not have adequate energy substrate. And in and, and those days, we believed that the substrate that the liver needed was sugar. So we said, okay, if we take the donor liver, when it's taken out of the uh, donor, um, and it's in the box, 
if we infuse sugar into that liver and we pre-glycogenate the liver, then if our theory is correct that a bad liver, a primary non-functional liver doesn't have sugar, if you add sugar, the liver should do much better after transplantation. And in fact, we found we would became very good at completely um, depleting donor livers of glycogen for our experiment. So on biopsy, these livers had no glycogen in them. They were devoid of glycogen, and they were okay, but when you hit a certain threshold of glycogen depletion, the liver started the malfunction. So it proved our theory. However, then what we did is we started to infuse massive amounts of sugar into these livers in a dose-response curve, and we used insulin to clamp that. And we actually used amino acids, and we used sugar. I used galactose, glucose, fructose, I used alanine, and I used glutamine. And those were the things we infused. We had a liver on a box, and we had we were running this blood or this fluid through them. And what we found is that in a direct dose-response curve, as you increase the amount of sugar, and fructose is the worst one, then glucose, then galactose, as you infuse sugar, the first thing we saw was an injury to the endothelial cell. And that is a direct glucose-mediated injury to the endothelial cells. And if you had whole blood with all the clotting factors, you develop clots in the blood vessels of uh, those vessels. And I can talk about that down the road. That is diabetes in action. However, as the, that sugar got into the hepatocytes, the cells behind the vessel cells, we saw very, very rapid conversion of that sugar to fat. And you saw these big, big foamy cells, uh, the hepatocytes just filling up with fat. Um, and those are called foam cells because they just, when you look at them under the microscope, they're foamy. And you can create a fatty liver in three hours, probably in about two hours, but so our experiment was for three hours of infusion. When you infuse alanine or glutamine, two amino acids, and alanine is the precursor for sugar in the gluconeogenic pathway, and we, we were able to glycogenate the livers. In other words, enough gluconeogenesis was occurring that those livers were producing a degree of sugar. They were glycogenating. There was zero fat production. So amino acids glycogenated the liver, but did not produce foam. When you used sugar as a substrate, there was some glycogen deposition, but there was this massive fat accumulation in these isolated livers. So we saw we, we could actually create a fatty liver in a three-hour experiment. And, and, so, and it was exclusively sugar. It wasn't uh, whole blood or amino acids that caused that effect. Now, on the flip side of that, um, as a fat guy, I topped out almost 300 pounds. This is an anecdote, but I was coming up with surgery. And what most bariatric surgeons do is they put their patients on a VLCD, a very low calorie diet. They put them on up to fast. You drink shakes for a month, which no fat person could ever do. And they use an ultra low calorie diet to reduce fatty liver. And it shrinks the size of the liver, but it doesn't eradicate the fat from the liver. So I thought about this and my own experience was I tried Octofast in the week before my surgery and it lasted, I could stay on Octofast for eight hours. And I said, screw that. And I lied to the surgeon. Fortunately, I didn't go through with my surgery because by that time I'd lost about 60 pounds on a ketogenic diet. So, and this is 19, 1999, 2000. So then I realized that what I was eating prevented me from having a fatty liver. And I also knew that I couldn't do a very low calorie diet. So I said in my own patient, I said, okay, let's do the experiment. 
because I'm going to operate on them. I'm going to have access to the direct access to the liver. And I put a cohort of patients on eat as much food as you want to, but zero carbohydrates, as close to zero as you can, which was really, interestingly enough, in the late 90s, early 2000s, a version of a near carnivore diet. And the others I put on Optifast, and I biopsied their livers. And I found that the patients who had been on a close to zero carbohydrate diet, I used 30 grams of total carbohydrates as my upper threshold per day. And those patients had no fat in their liver. They were glycogenated, but they had no fat in their liver. The people on the Optifast had small livers, but they still had a degree of fat in those livers. So I converted my pre-op program, anytime I'm doing full gut surgery, for anywhere from three to five, three to seven days, I put my patients on a zero, as close to zero carbohydrate diet as I can. And I tell my patients, you can eat a whole cow a day. I don't care how much you eat, but don't even look at the mashed potatoes. Kind of what you do. And now I biopsy, I biopsy every liver I operate on. So it's, I've got over a thousand liver biopsies. And I can tell you categorically on biopsy, none of them that reliably did not eat carbohydrates have a fatty liver. And when I go back and I see a fatty liver and I ask them, well, it was my birthday, it was this, those are the people that when you interrogate them did not follow the protocol. Loved ones will tell you they didn't. It's very, very obvious. There's no great science to this. It's so, so obvious. Yeah, and that, that, uh, that fact and, and, and the fact that how responsive it is, you know, how, how acute you can change that. You're talking about infusing a liver for three hours of glucose and boom, you got a fatty liver. And, you know, you say they go on the weekend, they go to a wedding and they eat a bunch of, eat, eat a bunch of wedding cake. This is exactly what Dr. Omaro said. He said he could, he could MRI somebody on Friday and look at their visceral fat and he can MRI them again Monday and he would know every one of them that basically ate a bunch of crap. And it would, it would show up that quickly, which is really, really interesting. And so I'm just, you know, again, I, I've often sort of, sort of griped about the dynamic variability of blood. I'm saying we mar we're measuring it because it's easy. The reason we measure it because it's phlebotomy is easy. We, we can get some numbers and we, we, we put so much reliance on that. I don't, but I mean, a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, my HDL went up or down three or five points from, from six months ago. I'm like, who gives a flying care about that? But now we're seeing that visceral fat is also something that's pretty darn dynamic. So what are we, how are we assessing people for health? I mean, what, if you, if you could say, you know, and I, I'm just getting, you know, the, the more I look at this, I'm like, it, it, it becomes, you, you have the really big picture. And I think, you know, I say, you know, our nutrition, our nutrition science for predicting the future. Am I going to get heart disease? Am I going to die of cancer? Am I going to live to a hundred? I don't think we, I don't think it's there. I don't think we can, we can hang our hat on any data that we have because all of the epidemiology, it's all basically, you know, junk science. But what I say is I can say, I can take a person that is, you know, sick, diseased, diabetic on medications, depressed on medications, rheumatoid, you know, and is on biologics and they can go from that to no longer symptomatic and no longer requiring medications. And I say that is an improvement in health. I think that is something we can do, but how, how do we assess health at this point? Because this is a question that I'm like, I mean, I, I can't say I can rely on a blood test. I can't say, you know, even maybe I can't even rely on visceral fat because it's so, so dynamic, you know, maybe dynamic or not. And you're talking about the method, the mechanism. So how do we assess healthy human beings versus sick human beings? Right. I think the first thing we have to do, Sean, is turn this upside down. The null hypothesis should be health. And 
what we do to ourselves, increasingly so over the last century or so, is we create ills. We create illness. We create unhealthiness by what we're smoking, by what we're drinking, and by what we're eating. So the human body is an incredibly powerful organism that really is designed in an incredibly way towards self-preservation. And it's only when you, and there's a very wide capacity for tolerance of harm by the human body, and it's usually self-induced harm. But at some stage over time, you reach a threshold beyond which the human body can no longer repair itself, and that's where disease happens. So the question is, what are those pathways of toxicity? In other words, if you start with a, with a newborn baby that's being breastfed, you've got a healthy human being. There may be some genetic things, there's obviously other things, but you've got a healthy human being. Then what do we do as a society, as parents, as individuals to create illnesses? And part of that is to understand normal human biology. And one of the things about normal human biology is everything in the human body, homeostasis, happens in a feedback pathway, and it's all cyclical. So if you're doing something in a continuous fashion, it's probably not a good idea. I mean, even Zach, who runs ridiculous amounts of uh, a distance in a, in, at any one time, you rest. And, and your rest is, consum- uh, uh, is, is equivalent to how much work you put in. And that's a normal cycle. If you trained all the time, your body would break down. And you'd, reach a, you'd get fit, and then it would reach a threshold where it breaks down. And the equivalent happens at a biochemical level. So we really have to examine what are the biologic pathways that preserve health rather than ameliorating illness. And the first thing is cyclical eating, which is what intermittent fasting is. If we eat all the time, our hormonal milieu is incoming all the time. It's not, it's not going backwards, irrespective of what you're eating. And then we have to look at, at the substrates that we really need. And we need five things. We need protein, fat, uh, minerals, vitamins, and trace elements, as well as water. And those are essential to human consumption. And if you look at the environment around us, and I know, Sean, you're going to disagree with me a little bit, but whether it is plants or animals, if we're eating things in the environment we grew up in, that's probably going to be okay for us. And that includes fruit from time to time. It's when we go in one direction or another that some of that aberration may happen. However, we are omnicarnivores. So we can survive pretty darn well, and there are first people that have shown this in a very healthy way on a carnivorous diet. Could we survive for a very long time on a plant-based diet? The reality is yes, we can. And as much as it's not necessarily the ideal diet, there are plenty of people on a non-carbohydrate plant-based diet that live for a very long period of time. They do supplement that a little bit. So the issue there is carbohydrates. If you don't smoke, if you don't drink alcohol, and if you don't eat carbohydrates, you are maintaining a fairly healthy way of life. And I think the middle ground for most people that are trying to be, uh, have longevity is the absence of things that cause illness. Now, from your side, if you look biologically at what makes a superior human being, and if you look at the three of us, I mean, we are radically different from here down. Zach can run for days. You can pump iron for days. I can sit and do nothing for a long time. But ultimately, all three of us, our bodies are pathetic. Neither, none of us can outrun a lion. None of us can outrun a gazelle. None of us can do that. Human beings are pathetic in terms of our bodies. 
What makes us humans apex in the animal world is this. And so therefore, my philosophy is that we really should do everything we possibly can do to maximize, maximize our brain potential. And then what happens here is kind of a byproduct of that. Does that make sense? Because that's what distinguishes us as humans. And our entire biology is geared toward, and evolutionary biology is geared toward making our brains as superiorly functioning as possible whether it's hormonal, whether it's eating fat in the structure of the brain, whether it's the thinking processes. And anything that damages the brain is a problem. And that includes things like carbohydrates, a lack of adequate substrates, and also a lot of the medications that we're on. There's also a rhythm, a sleep-wake rhythm. That's why your, your caffeine versus taking a break. There is physical activity that, that, that helps the brain. But I believe that if you're going to be really healthy, it is really focusing on brain health. And the body comes secondary to that as much as we're into our bodies. And each one of the three of us is highly intellectual in terms of what we do. And we think about, Zach thinks more about his training than he's actually training. I mean, you plan and you prepare. Same thing with you, Sean. I mean, you eat the carnivore diet, but when I hear you speak, there's a huge amount of science behind that. And that's what gives you legitimacy. So to my mind, long story short, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but really what we're looking at doing is preventing illness rather than trying to create health. Because the null hypothesis for the human body and the human brain is we're born healthy for the most part. And then we've got to abrogate the things that we do to create harm. And what you've done, what Zach has done with running, what you've done with, uh, with your diet is maximize human health. So the way I look at the carnivore diet is it's not only a restoration of health, but it probably is the next move downstream for brain expansion. Because ultimately, that's what we did. We started out as vegetarian primate ancestors, and we become more and more carnivore as the substrate for our brain. And there is no better substrate than the picture behind you. So to my mind, if you're going to move evolutionarily forward, it's eating more and more animal-based products or eating foods or manufactured foods that duplicate or replicate what you find in a steak. And, and we're not sophisticated enough yet to do that. Um, so I think that you are looking at next-gen, whereas a lot of us are looking at preventing a slide backwards toward our vegetarian ancestors. Does that, well, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it does. And I mean, you're probably aware of the fact that, you know, there was a, after we had developed agriculture, we we saw a, a significant decrease in our in our brain size based on these endocranial measurements of something like 200 cc. So we went from, I you know, my understanding is the peak in human brain size occurred in the Neanderthal at about 1700 cc's, and now you and I are sitting somewhere in this 1200 to 1300 cc, and probably Cro-Magnon, and and you know back to about 125,000 years we were probably closer to 1500 CC. So we've lost. And so I, I you know, I think we, we, we did go backwards already. And, you know, some people would, would argue that brain size does not necessarily indicate intelligence. I would say within the same species, it probably does. I don't think there was any greater disease of encephalization or neural connections that were occurring. I think probably being alive back then was much harder and intellectually challenging in a different way than you and I that just have to dial on our phone to order a pizza. I mean, this is not a very intellectually taxing life that we have right now. You don't, you don't live or die on your wits anymore. 
And so I think that, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've lost, we went backwards. And I think this push to push us further back to the frugivores or the followers or whatever we may say is our common ancestors is exactly the wrong thing that we're going to be doing. And I think we're going to see a continued diminution of, you know, brain capacity size. It's not going to, obviously it's not going to happen in one generation, but I mean, if we were to let this play out over, you know, 50, 50,000 years, we'd probably see another hundred cc's knocked off for brain size. And so it's kind of a, I'm not sure volume is the issue. Well, I think sophisticated anatomy is, and, Genetically, the best opportunity we can give to our child is to raise them, is to breed them in utero and then uh, uh, raise them in a ketogenic atmosphere with a healthy emotion management system, which we've also moved away from. But, but to my mind, you maximize the genes that we have in that regard. And I think that, that natural selection, Darwinism, and this is a horrible thing to say, but as much as we want humanity to do what we believe is right, ultimately we're a pyramidal society. And the people that, for example, will do the carnivore diet, I believe are going to migrate toward the top. The uh, people that are on a, uh, a carbohydrate-based diet are going to be at the bottom, and they're not going to contribute to the species down the road. And that's selection of the fittest. That's survival of the fittest. You know, what? one of the interesting things is, why do people like the Inuits, the Eskimos exist? Why, why are they still around? Why are hunter-gatherer societies still around even you know, after thousands of years? Why did we not stay hunter-gatherer? And the reason is because we were less good at what we did. It's not that we became smarter and better. We weren't good at creating a sustainable food source and a sustainable clan when we were hunter-gatherers. So we looked toward agriculture to create a sustainable sustainable source. The reason the Inuits have been so good is they're damn good at maintaining a sustainable food source. And also, if you look at their clan structure, they're not one person. They're a group that functions more as a complex system than as an individual. So behaviorally, as well as nutritionally, they've provided tremendously well for themselves. And that's true for hunter-gatherers. In other words, there was no pressure for them to change because they were so good at what they did. We kind of failed at doing what we did. So we looked for an alternative and we became farmers. And the sacrifice was for a sustainable food source was the type of food that we were eating. So I agree with you that we probably biologically just took a step backwards. And then we go into mechanization and manufacture of food with the erroneous assumption that fat was bad for us, which was an observation that came in the nicotine era. And we've taken an even bigger step backwards. So I think that, you know, and, and if you look at evolution, there's a lot of these dead-end branches. And my concern is we're kind of heading down that dead-end branch. We're losing sight of the trunk by doing these things that we believe to be correct, but they're non-evolutionary biological in terms of the interpretation of what we should be doing. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I would just comment that I think one of the things is we, we, we mismanage our food source when we, when we overhunted the megafaunal. And I mean, there's some people that argue, but... Clearly, we, I think most paleozoologists would agree that humans had a significant role in the demise of most of the animals because everywhere we went in mass within a few thousand years, those animals basically disappeared. So we ate out our food source. And, the, and you know, the small amount of people that, that decided to live in the polar extremes, the, the numbers were so small that they couldn't out-eat their food supply. They still had seals. They still had fish. They had, you know, caribou, reindeer, whatever. And so those guys are still up there doing that. But, I mean, the rest of the places 
once you had a, a, another option and the food source went away, you're kind of stuck. And I think that's where, that's where we went with that. And uh, uh, we had a guy, Professor uh, Guy McPherson on the other day, and he is taking your sort of posit about, you know, messing up our food source and, 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 and rapidly saying that we're, the human species will be extinct by 2026. We, invite, we invited him on in 2027, hoping he is wrong. <laughs> But, but, you know, we are probably, you know, and, and, you know, this goes into a lot of different topics and, you know, are we, we, are we, you know, responding to this climate change crisis, whether it's a contrived crisis or not is, is debatable, but, you know, d responding to it by aggressively trying to change our human diet to, to this plant-based diet, which I, I think just represents the interest of this, you know, processed food, you know, alternate protein uh, $100 billion a year projected industry. And I think this is what we're seeing with that. But uh, that, that's, that's another hour discussion here. And so <laughs> anyway, Robert, this has been wonderful. I mean, I think we can, we could probably do five of these shows and we should probably do another one, you know, six months from now and keep going through all this stuff because this is fascinating and you, you have a great way of just kind of, you know, relating all this great information because there's so much more there. But I, I unfortunately have to, 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 to head out and, uh, so just for the people that have darn for me, let us know where people can find you, where they can find you. See, you're getting more active on Instagram. I like to see that. And I think it's our duty to do that as physicians. And we have to defend our, defend our turf and defend it aggressively. And if it's through humor or through whatever, I mean, it's, it's whatever we got to do to get, to get the message out, you know, and screaming from the, from the rooftops if, we, if necessary. Right. I think, you know, just if I can make this comment, one of the concerns I have with what we do, I mean, we, we believe passionately with what we do, but we really don't have a world famous leader in terms of what we do. The exposure isn't there. You know, if Elise Parker can get on Fox News, but you can't, there's something to be said about that. You know, Elise Parker is. Um, and the, the best we currently have is Joe Rogan. Um, but Joe is also an alternative resource. He's not a mainstream resource. You know, you have John Cameron who makes a movie to sell pea protein, essentially, um, and to create a, a message. And it's watched by thousands of people because, or millions of people because he, and influences millions because he is this icon that everybody can identify with. You have Oprah telling everybody to do Weight Watchers despite the fact that she's still obese and waving bread around. I, I have issues with public representation, and we just don't have that representation. But what we have is that grass, grassroots, and more and more, someone like yourself has heavily influenced me into the, the social media side, not as a doctor, but as someone who thinks, and, and ultimately someone who helps people to go, hmm, that makes sense. Because so much of what we do is irrational. And, and that, that irrationality or that simplistic observation takes us down the wrong pathway. So I love what you guys have done, what, what Ken Berry has done. Um, absolutely phenomenal. And I'm trying to duplicate that for myself. My YouTube channel and, and the brand I'm creating for myself is Carb Addiction Doc. And I'm really, even though we got into it just a little bit, I didn't focus on it. But the whole reason why we become fat and, and type 2 diabetics is in my wheelhouse, the whole addiction side to carbohydrates. So we explore that in little mini episodes. But ultimately, the goal for us is this. It's to create the support infrastructure for our brains and to eat accordingly. And Carb Addiction Doc is probably the single best place to go, uh, both on Instagram and on uh, YouTube. And we've got more and more things dropping. But, but I am so thankful 
for you showing us, uh, Sean, if I can get this out for one second, I knew that it was okay to eat meat, but because of all the aberrant noise about fat and everything else, even though I knew intellectually it was the right thing to do, there was still that concern for me is, is it truly okay? And I'm either one that wants to do that experiment. I was speaking to a cardiologist who's a keto cardiologist and he says, totally anti-statins. And then I said, if a person is the person you described, would you stop their statins? Uh, I'm not ready to do that yet. That's how I was about carnivore. And you were the guy that did the experiment that proved to me that it's absolutely fine, okay. And I would add necessary to go down that pathway. So thank you very much for what you do. Uh, and Zach, <laughs> what you do on an average over 100 miles, I can't do for one mile. So, <laughs> So I, I just the 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 adoration. I'm a I'm a total fan. I mean, it is just ridiculous how how in awe of of what you do I am. So thank you very much for being that well, yeah, leader in terms of physical activity. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Well, th thank thanks for coming on, Robert. And I, I'll say this because this is what I tell people when they look at my my pace for the hundred miles. The, the first mile I ran was almost forty seconds slower than that average pace for a hundred miles. So there's hope. <laughs> wow. I really love what you guys do. And you guys are spearheading us in, in both directions. It's absolutely phenomenal. Thank you. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit, for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.